Hi, welcome to episode seven of Titanium Talk. My name is Jason Neen and I'm with Brenton Howes. Hi, Brenton. Hey, how are you? Good, thanks. A bit cold here. Hey, it's cold here, even in Texas. Probably not as cold as you, though. Oh, really? Uh, apparently, I, one of the guys in TI Slack that helps me out with a few things said it snowed in Madrid the other day. So, so that was very unusual. Unusual. So, yeah, it must be getting quite cold out there. Um, right, we've got some things to talk about. Um, we've had a bit of a delay just with timings of things, getting this out, but I'm, we're recording this on Monday the 12th, and I'm going to try and publish this at the same same day, so it'll be out today. Um, firstly, let's cover some news. Brenton, do you want to talk about uh, GA release of AppCelerator 7.02? So we have, there's been a release of the CLI, the SDK, um, Alloy has a release, and Hyperloop, so there's a lot of new releases out there, uh, mostly bug fixes for the SDK so there's some things in Alloy that give you new ES6 support. They've also updated Backbone and Underscore, so that's kind of cool that give you new versions of that. There's also some new uh, features in Hyperloop. So there's a lot of new features. Make sure you go out there, run all the updates, and be able to try those out with your new apps. Cool. Um, there's also been um, Git.io, which is the service that um, Accelerator took, or Axway took over. That had a couple of glitches over the last couple of weeks just because of the way the indexing works. And we had some issues with some of the repos that were uh, listed in there being private um, and causing some errors that were was causing the indexer to fail. But hopefully that's been fixed now. So you should start seeing some things popping up there and, and new modules appearing. And also it's now showing modules compatible with Android 64. Yes, that's I saw that announcement as well. So that'll help with when you're building things for that 7.0 SDK, I believe. So that'll be good. Cool. Uh, but the big news is, we've got some other things to talk about, but the big news, obviously, with um, Titanium right now is the announcement that there will be a te- technical preview, I think at the end of February, of AngularJS support with Titanium, which is pretty huge news. That is big. That'll... That had a lot of uh, a lot of new use cases for being able to try out some things with Titanium. Yeah, and I think there was there was a, a sort of weird reaction in terms of a lot of positivity in terms of you know Angular JS being supported. Few people were a bit puzzled and wondered why that was picked. There was a little bit of discussion and a couple of tweets almost got fired off that were asking, "Does that mean Alloy's dead?" And and it doesn't. Um, you know, so historically, for those who are new to Titanium and new to using it, uh, we used to write everything in classic, what we call classic Titanium. So it was all JavaScript. So there was no alloy. There were no, it wasn't model view controller set up. There was nothing like that. You literally had an app.js file uh, and you just started coding and you would create your own methods of handling windows and views. And typically what would happen is you'd write a lot of JS code in a file that would be creating views, creating labels and buttons, adding those to the views, adding those to the windows. Um, I I got to the point, I mean, you know, it's how we all had to work. But I do remember getting to a point when Alloy came along that I thought I needed, I needed something like that just because I was getting quite fed up with having to write all this stuff. Um, and it was quite difficult to sort of see the relationship between things. You know, some developers would do all their labels and view creation at the top and then add it all afterwards. Some would do it as they go along. And it actually created, I know that JavaScript and and Titanium apps, you can always, even with Alloy, still see people do things different ways. But it would really create very, very different code bases between developers and how they approach stuff. Um, You know, using CommonJS to include a window 
manager and then generate new windows and things like this and it would it was a real it was a real challenge sometimes to look through existing code and work with existing code so alloy came along as a as a way of you know the way alloy works is you create your views you create your tss you create your controllers and then it's pre-processed so at build time it's it's pre-processing that stuff and it's effectively generating classic code but classic code in a consistent way you never need to see that code you never need to worry about the stuff in the resources folder that's all taken care of for you you just keep working with alloy and all we're talking about here is that sort of view engine that sort of view controller and the style side of things is going to be um, available with Angular as well. So you'll be coding in TypeScript, I think it is, with Angular. You can code with um, you know, JavaScript and TypeScript. You'll be doing uh, views with Angular views and styling using Angular styling. And then the pre-processing will do the same thing it does with Alloy and turn that into code behind the scenes that then runs as a normal Titanium app. That's my understanding. Yeah, I'm very curious to take a look at uh, I'm curious how much uh, will be done at compile time versus if they'll have any components of it that are runtime for yeah. Angular as well. But I think this is pretty exciting news. So I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on the code. Yeah, and I, I, and I think it's it's part of a lot more that's coming up. You know, there are so one of the you know a couple of the comments that came back were, oh, why was Angular used? Why was that picked over anything else? Well, that was the first one that was picked. Um, there are others that are going to be worked on. So there's ones like Vue.js and other other systems that are going to be looked at and potentially added in later. So there could be a case where there is actually a, a really good choice of these build tools and these frameworks that you can use to generate Titanium apps. And I think, you know, the the key thing here is it's about bringing new developers into the platform. Um, and, you know, couple of suggestions that, oh, why can't people just use Alloy? Why do they have to, you know, add Angular? Why not do it this way? Well, Alloy's not going to change. Well, it's going to improve, but Alloy's still there. So those of us that want to work with Alloy can still work with Alloy. Um, but what this means is that developers who are used to developing with Angular, maybe using other cross-platform frameworks or just in the web, there's less friction for them to come in and start learning how Alloy works. Because, you know, it can be... I think Alloy is very straightforward and very easy to learn. But coming from a web background, you can get confused with things like style sheets because TSS sounds like CSS. So you think it's like cascading style sheets, and then you suddenly find out it's not. It's more like separating of properties, you know, out of the out of the normal um, view system. So there's stuff that you have to get used to about how things work. Whereas if you've come from a background that you know, you're already used to developing apps in Angular and you know what components are and you know how views are built and you know how events are handled, well, it's going to make it much easier to move into doing native applications with Titanium. And it's going to it's going to grow the user base. It's going to bring in new developers. It's going to, you know, allow us to have more meetups with more varied content. We can start looking at Angular components. We can start looking at you know, Angular samples and tutorials. And, you know, the Kitchen Sync app is going to be redone or a new kitchen sink will be done in Angular. doesn't mean the old one's dead. doesn't mean Alloy's dead. It just means there's more examples and more ways to get more developers using this platform, which is what we want. I think I think that's the key. Uh, Alloy is, bit, is written uh, is only Accelerator, whereas Angular, you're going to be able to use that outside. Also, as far as if worry about taking away from Alloy, Angular is written outside of Accelerator, Xway as well, so we're able to use the take advantage of all the Angular stuff without having to build Angular itself. So 
the only thing we have to build is the integration in with Titanium. So I think that's a, a really big advantage as far as resources and getting this done quickly as well. Exactly. And also with the... Um, you know, with mobile web, with the Titanium mobile web effectively being deprecated and eventually going, you know, we've got this missing link now. If you wanted to do web stuff, um, and one of the ways that I, I see people do web stuff is Angular. Um, and so, you know, being able to do something, especially for me, if I can, you know, it'd be a great opportunity to learn Angular because I don't really do any web stuff anymore. Um, you know, I used to do .NET and HTML and JavaScript and that sort of thing, but I, I really don't touch web apps anymore. So this would be a great way to learn Angular to do that. But also you're not learning something new uh, in addition. You know, you're, you're learning something that I, I can basically learn Angular to play around with Titanium and to build Titanium apps. And then immediately I can just go and start looking at a web app in, in Angular and the, it's going to be familiar because I'm using the same, you know, techniques in Titanium. So it's going to hopefully allow you to reuse more code um, so that you can build a web app. You can offer someone an iOS app, an Android app, and a web app, but the web app can be built in Angular and you can reuse some of the code that you might be using for business logic and things like that, some of that TypeScript. So it should be really interesting. And I, I, I'm all for it. I definitely, you know, I love Alloy, love the way it works, and I'll still be working with Alloy for, for projects, but I definitely want to take a look at this and play with it and it will be a good, be a good opportunity to learn a new language for me and a new way of coding but I'm still building something I'm familiar with at the end of the day, which is Titanium apps. And it'll be quite cool to write components and things like that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see some of the, the apps coming out, the sample apps using this after it's released and see how they're able to take advantage of it. So the other interesting thing that's happened, which isn't necessarily Titanium related, uh, but I want to just talk about it because I've been playing around with some, some app code to do with it, is the HomePod. Um, did you get one? I haven't gotten one yet. I would, it's on my wish list. <laughs> uh, so I got one. Uh, I ended up buying two. I, I bought one, and then I, I thought, I'm probably going to like this, so I'll buy another one, because the one I got was from the office. And then I bought one for the house. Uh, but it's literally just going to be one, I think, because it's not the sort of thing that you want to be putting in most of the rooms at the, at the price. Um, it's great. I mean, the sound is amazing. Um, the Siri, uh, the Hey Siri, I don't want to say it too loud. Um, response is really good even when music is playing so it's everything that they're saying it is in terms of its speaker quality the interesting thing that I wanted to play with and why I bring this up is the Siri kit um, functionality and how that all works so you know the way the way it works at the moment is that it's using uh, obviously I, I think there's some stuff in there that's when it's playing music and stuff that it's doing itself but when you're using apps like things um, it's using the Siri kit interface effectively from your phone um, that's how it's basically doing it. So when you say add add something to things, it's using SiriKit via the Things app on your phone, and that's being relayed through the HomePod to your your to you know to your phone. So it's going through to your Things backend. So what I was playing with was the SiriKit demo, and I need to do an update to the docs because there's one little mistake in there to do with provisioning, which is in the the sample app that links off, but it's not in the actual doc. And I was just playing around with a test app just to add some SiriKit functionality. I mean, it's pretty cool. I mean, the Siri. Siri kit works by having these intents um, or these domains or however you refer to it, but I'll refer to it as intents because that's the way the code's written. Uh, and these intents can be different things. You can have notes, which can also be to-do items. Uh, you can have workouts. You can have, what's the other ones? You can have uh, maps, uh, navigation. Yeah, there's a the list has gotten a little bit longer. I know with 11, iOS 11, they added several new ways of being able to integrate with it. I don't have the list in front of me, but there's several different ways of doing it. Yeah, there's ones that there's key ones that are missing, like music isn't there. Um, so they haven't opened that capability up 
for you know Spotify and other people to be able to play music. So you know that would solve the initial problem of people complaining about HomePod not being Spotify compatible because you'd be able to say, "Hey Dingus, play something on Spotify," and it would be using Siri Kit through the phone to then play it on the speaker. Um, so uh, hopefully, you know, iOS twelve thing maybe, uh, but it was actually pretty straightforward. Um, so the way it, the way it works, if if people haven't done this sort of stuff before with extensions like the watch and things with titanium is that you have your normal titanium app. So I had an existing app, which is a very simple app. I was just using it to test out um, some, some code that I was talking to someone in TI Slack about with the uh, dynamic fields, which I'll, I'll, I'll stick up at some point, a blog on that. Um, so basically you need to add, there's a, there's a few things you need to do. One thing you need to register an app ID for your app. Uh, typically you do that as a wildcard because then you can um, add an extension to it and it's all in the documentation so i if my app's called com.appc.testapp then i might create a provisioning profile that's uh, com.appc.testapp.star which is a wildcard one so i create that's for the mate that's for my app and then you have the extension itself so you create another one for the extension which which would be in this example com.appc.testapp test.extension or whatever you're going to call it. I mean, come up with some better names than that. Once you've got the app IDs and the provisioning profiles created, you can then set up the project. And, and the way to do that is you create a, a new blank project in Xcode. So com somewhere completely separate. Um, and you create a blank project, you add an extension to that project, which is an intense extension, and it defaults to using the messaging intent. You uh, you get all that set up. You don't have to have a UE if you don't want. You can decide to have a UE. And that's basically the thing that would pop up in Siri if you said, you know, hey, Dingus, add a task to so-and-so. It would come up with a little interface. If you don't do a, uh, an interface, it will have a default one. So in my example, I did a to-do one, and it just uses the default to-do, like reminder-style interface. Uh, but you can put your own UE in there. Uh, and then basically you copy that folder, that whole project folder, into an extensions folder in the project. You have to do a few things in your TI app XML, which is all in that document, um, and adding some provisioning profiles in there, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers of the provisioning profiles. And then when you do a build, what happens is that extension is then packaged into that app. So your app becomes effectively the host app um, that packages that extension into the system. Uh, so the end result that what I got was that once the app was installed, I was able to say... Um, hey, hey, Dingus, send a message using test app or tips app, I think I call it. And it would, and it, uh, after a permission thing, it would ask me for a permission for Siri. Um, and then it would basically say, you know, who do you want to send a message to? And it would start going through that whole interface, whether it's an in, uh, um, a visual interface or an audio interface to actually send the message. Now, it didn't send the message, obviously, because it's just demo code, but it, it kicks it off. And the cool thing is that works from the HomePod. So as soon as I tried it on the, said the same thing to the HomePod, and she said exactly the same response, which is, you know, who do you want to send a message to? I could say, Jason, what would you want to say? I could say the message. Shall I send it? Yes. She, It's all mock. She pretends that she's done it. The code hooks are all in the sample. And then essentially what you have to do is, you know, the way extensions work is it's, I've I fallen into this trap before of thinking, and we were talking about this before the show, um, of thinking that extensions work in real time with your app. So there's some sort of inter-app communication. And that's not really how they're supposed to work. So in an example, like a to-do app, for example, I would have my Titanium to-do app, which would sync with cloud services, you know, API builder, get the to-do list back. That's how I would then add items and complete items. Then I have my extension, which in this case was a Swift extension. That has the intent stuff in there to do notes or to add to do items, uh, and you can do one item. You can you know do one item, or you can add multiple items by just saying them all after each other. 
And then the Swift code in there would handle that intent, would have some code in there to go off to the same back end, would add the items into the back end. Once confirmed, would, would give the instruction to complete it for Siri to say, you know, it's been done uh, or, the, or there was an error or something. And my app doesn't load. You know, your main Titanium app wouldn't load. If you then went into the Titanium app later, it would obviously sync as it load, as it starts up, and then it, that new item would appear. And that's pretty much how these extensions tend to work. Um, there are ways that you can do it. So, for example, if I said, um, if I said something to um, Siri that was more complex, or I need to actually launch my app, uh, maybe for a workout or something like that, then you can have an option in the Swift code or in the Objective-C code that says continue in app. And then what, that's when she usually says to you, you know, you need to launch Tips app to continue. And then you would launch it and it passes a packet of information through. And I'm playing around with that at the moment to just try and extract that and work out how to extract that to make that work. And then what I'll do is put put a sort of demo app together and maybe a blog post on how to do it all. But it's really cool. And it, and it, you know, it means that you can start building titanium apps uh, or you can build titanium apps that will work with HomePod. You know, if they're on the device, you can communicate with them. And, you know, using the basic intents, uh, you can make that stuff happen. And hopefully if they add more intents in the future, we'll be able to do things like play music and do other stuff as well. So it's pretty cool. That's very cool. I think I want to get one now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would like, it's a shame. It would be cool if you could do the the real, t- it, what would be nice, okay, so my sort of dream situation is, my app is either running in the background or not. So, you know, because you can't control that, iOS can control that. I can say, hey, Dingus, um, add a to-do item or do this or add this to my notes or my, my, my certain project, X, Y, Z or whatever. What I really would love it to do is, is kickstart the app up in the background and then have a sort of event handler that I can use, like a JavaScript event handler within that app to say a new message has been received or a new, inst- you know, new data packet has been received. And I can then pull that data packet, you know, do stuff to it and respond almost like with a callback. And then that will complete the cycle. So you don't see the app launch. The app just happens in the background. It's almost like a silent launch. Um, and it just starts it up in the background, fires the event and comes back. Now, I believe there are ways to do it using something called wormhole. But I, I, my understanding when I was reading this through, uh, and you know, anyone correct me if I'm wrong out there, is that that only works if the app is running in the background. So um, there was a native library someone wrote called Wormhole, and then uh, a developer created a TI module for that um, called TI Wormhole, surprisingly enough. And effectively, the way that works is it does interact communication and, and extension communication using groups. So what you can do is... You create your extension and your app ID, your app IDs for both extension and your main app, your host app in the same group within the developer portal. And when you group apps like that, they can share common folders and common resources. That's why you get certain apps like, um, I guess, Google Docs and things like that that can launch from previous, you know, logins. They can just use your previous logins and things like that because they're all using, they're all in the same app group. Uh, And then so basically, if you do that, the way Wormhole works is it leverages that to create this communication. So if your app is running in the background and you do the extension in the foreground, it can literally send an event to that app and that app can pick it up and respond to it, which is pretty cool. Uh, but I don't think it works when it's running from what I read. It, it says it has to be in the background. So I might try it, see what happens. It might be interesting. Um, but yeah, that's that's the last bit that I need to do. And, and then I'll probably update the docs and put a sample project up. I might do it on that to-do app I did just to sort of make it nice and, and complete. Now, the, the demo that goes up 
um, the sort of the the, uh, the demo app that you create, the demo extension that you create, defaults to a messaging intent. But it didn't take me long to go through some of the intents to add in the one for um, tasks, which is called notes, which is the key thing. You're looking for things on tasks. It actually refers to tasks, but when you look it up, it's to do with notes. So you've got to make sure you handle it right. Um, but it didn't take long to work it out, put it in the Swift, and then I'll, I'll rip out all the other code that doesn't make sense. And it's a fairly straightforward callback. Um, it takes the response, it reacts to it, you do stuff with it. And if your stuff is successful, you pass a response handler to say it's been completed and Siri says it's done. That's cool. Sounds like a good, good blog post too. Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, it was, it's, it's been around for a while, but I think it's quite relevant, you know, with, with, with the HomePod coming along because there's that, not confusion, but that understanding of how this stuff works. You know, where is this stuff running? It's not like um, the Echo where it's running on some, uh, cloud service with skills and everything it just doesn't work like that it's using your phone so it should be uh should be interesting i don't know how it works with the weird thing about the home pod at the moment is and this is all going to be stuff that obviously is solved through software the weird thing is the way it works at the moment is that you tie it to your your cloud account so you know when i which i just is it is crazy when you think this stuff goes in a house with multiple people unless apple think that everybody's single and lives alone with their cats or something um, so, you know, when I, when I create it and configure it, I configure it against my cloud account. So it's got access to my Apple music and everything else. Now I'm in, I've got a family music plan. So that sort of still shares that stuff out. Um, and, and you have to set it whether you want to use reminders or want to, you know, allow access to calendars or whatever, because obviously you don't want your kids creating things, shop, adding stuff to shopping lists and things like that if you don't want. So you can turn all that stuff off per HomePod. They can all have their own configuration. So the one in the office I can do anything with and the one in the house I've turned that stuff off. What I don't understand is what happens. I'm, I mean, I'm guessing what happens is if, you know, when, when, when I say to HomePod, uh, hey, Dingus, um, add a, add a uh, carrots to my to-do app, it's going to use my phone Siri kit. It's going to go through the phone to do that. And then she's going to respond appropriately. She's just adding, you know, acting as almost like a proxy for the, for the sound, really. What I don't understand is what happens if I'm not home and um, my wife says that, you know, does it... Does it go through her phone? Yeah, well, yeah, well, it, it, it won't go through her... Well, if it did go through her phone, she hasn't got the app installed. So if I'm the one... I mean, I need to test this because it'll be interesting. If I've got the app installed and I'm at home and she says it, I guess it would work because I'm there. But if I'm not at home and she says it, does that actually go out of the house? Does it, you know, will it will it effectively run that, obviously without me knowing because it's you don't see the interface on the phone would it actually go out and then you know work remotely do you know what i mean like i'm out walking the dog and she says add a to-do item to the to-do app does it do that remotely to me yeah i wonder i you'll have to try that out and let me know because that if it if it does do that that that's very interesting it, well, it is. It also makes it quite interesting because it means that you could have uh, an iOS device in your house, like an iPad set up, that is the thing that is the, you know, uses your cloud account and is connected to HomePod in that way. And therefore, you could effectively be loading that up with apps and then they could work for every, anyone for anywhere. But I guess if it's on your phone, it doesn't really matter. It's interesting. I'm going to try it. Um, you know, once I've got. Once I've got this working a little bit better, I'll test it and just see what happens. Yeah, you know, I can do things like uh, do it from her. She can do it to HomePod because I guess that's—I mean—that's no different from me doing it to HomePod. It doesn't know her voice or my voice, 
but obviously if I'm in the vicinity, it's going to work. So what I could do then is just put my phone on, you know, airplane mode and I'm guessing it won't work because effectively I'm out of the house and non-communicative. And then the other thing to try is to test it when I am out of the house with the phone on and see what happens and just sort of say to her, can you try it now? Um, I'm guessing it will say something like I can't do that right now or something. But if it did work, it would be pretty impressive. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely interested in hearing how that how that all works out because obviously this is really new. It's hard to find examples of what people have done with the HomePod and Siri Kit and some of the other things. So, yeah, yeah, sounds cool. So I'll uh, I'll let you know on that. But definitely I'll post something. So as soon as I've got this working to a point where I'm happy with it, I'll. I'll get a sort of sample project up and a blog post on how I did it and point to those documents. It it was fairly straightforward copying that document. The only thing that threw me, it's literally a one pager, but the only thing that threw me was the provisioning profile. There's a little bit where you have to put the prof, the provisioning profile ID of the extension in the TI app XML uh, for the different build types. And if you don't do that, it won't work. It won't build. Um, and it was just that one little thing that was missing, but it is in the sample code for the project that links off that post. So, and if you, if anyone's looking for it, I'll put the links in the, in the blog, in the, um, show notes. Uh, it's just, it's just, you know, Siri kit integration with titanium is basically the search terms, but it will be in the, uh, in the show notes. Okay. What else can we talk about? Hyperloop. We had a question from Wiki Khan on Twitter, um, regarding Hyperloop tricks and tips. So I know the best thing about Hyperloop is that you have like, access to native and the hardest thing for a lot of people about hyperloop is that you have access to native so if you have a background in native at all it really helps when you go to use hyperloop because you have access to a lot of the the raw power of native if you don't understand some of the native and i'm not necessarily the native expert and a lot of times i'll go in there and try and figure stuff out and the best way sometimes get documentation about what I need to do is actually looking for the native documentation about what I need to do. Some people try and go tackle stuff with Hyperloop before knowing how you would do it in native. And it's important to understand how it works in native because you really are just accessing the native. So I know there's documentation. I just uh, looked up. There's a wiki.accelerator.org that has some good Hyperloop documentation, and I know they've been updating this a lot lately. A lot of your best bet when you're going to do Hyperloop is looking at this, and there's also, say you go to the documentation site and you want to know how to do a block. Um, You're doing iOS uh, Hyperloop, and you can look at the wiki, and it'll tell you how to do a block in Hyperloop that'll translate to a block in the native code. So it might be a slightly different syntax because you're working with JavaScript as opposed to Swift or Objective-C. But that is a really good place to start. And But if you're going to implement a native module, having the documentation for that, say, CocoaPod or whatever, the if you're working with Android, look at, look at the documentation for that particular module and having that before you go to implement is a huge plus because like I said, it you have to understand how to do it natively in order to be able to do it with Hyperloop. That's that's what Hyperloop gives you is the access to be able to do this native stuff from within JavaScript. Yeah, exactly. I think um, it's difficult because you, you get people coming into Slack and asking about Hyperloop help. And if 
if they if they haven't got that native experience, then it can be quite overwhelming understanding how everything works. Because you know, Swift and Objective C and iOS and the way certain methods are called and certain methods are named. Uh, especially, I was playing around with that Swift stuff for the intent stuff, and 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 it was sort of highlighted there. Is quite is is something you have to sort of get used to and understand. And then as soon as you move into doing Hyperloop stuff with iOS using JavaScript, you sort of understand why you're naming things the way you're doing it and why you're calling methods the way they're named, and and it sort of starts to fit together. So I. The first little module that I started playing with was one using the Material Design Library from Google, which they did for iOS. So you know this is a complete, uh, it's a pot, you know it's a CocoaPod, and it's a complete uh, native component. And I was trying to write something and just doing simple things like create a floating button, a floating round button, or using one of their progress indicators. So I was literally doing this from scratch. I had no clue about, um, there was no, no code I could copy for this because it hadn't been done. So I was just trying to do this myself. So it, for me, it took sort of looking through some existing Hyperloop modules into how you know, requires were done and things like that. So how you required UEKit and how you required um, CocoaPod modules that you'd installed. And then it was a case of trying to work out how to how to call the methods. So what I was doing was looking I was sort of doing what you were suggesting. I went, I, I was struggling a little bit with the JavaScript side of it. So actually what I did is I just looked at the documentation for Swift. And when I looked at the documentation for Swift on how to implement this, I could see the way certain methods were named. And understanding the way Hyperloop works in that, you know, if you want to create a label, you create, an inst- you create a reference to the class of the UE label, and then you create a new instance of that UE label. Once I understood that, I sort of understood how to create a new in, a new um, reference to a class for, say, a floating button. And then I could create an instance of that floating button. Where it threw me with certain things is we get used to, in Titanium, a lot of this stuff being taken care of. So when we create a button, we create width, height, top, left, you know, whatever. And it's really easy. When you start doing stuff raw in iOS, you've got to start using sort of CG rect and you've got to start creating this stuff yourself. So understanding that was a bit tricky because I was trying to work out, well, why is my floating button not appearing when I managed to get the normal button appearing because I gave it a CG rect for, you know, the, the coordinates and the width and height, and that seemed to work. But my my floating button isn't. And it was because in Titanium, if I was doing a floating round button, I would still give it a width and a height, and then I would use, use a border radius. You know, so most people would do that. And you'd if you said it was, you know, 50 and 50, you would set a border radius to 25. You've got a circle and a background color. You know, you've got a circle, simple. But with the material design floating button, it took a radius parameter. So it took an X and Y and a radius parameter. I couldn't have got that just from looking at JavaScript because there was no instruction on that. I was sort of using my titanium knowledge, which was wrong. So looking at the actual documentation for the material design library suddenly showed me all of these properties. And now it was like, ah, okay, now I, now I know how I need to set this. Now I know how I need to do this. And you know, it took me a little while to play around with it, but I finally got it working. Um, got progress indicators working, got normal buttons working with little shadows and got the floating button working. And one of the things that definitely helped me was, I can't remember, I think it was for the progress indicator. There was an enum that had to be specified as to whether there was whether you were sending through a progress value or something else, you know, whether it was just animating. Uh, one of the things that helped me there is that I looked for the enum references in the documentation 
And one of the tricks that you can do, one of the things that helped me, was to look at the actual metadatabase files that are generated by Hyperloop. Yeah, that that's a huge plus. Yeah, so when I cr- when you yeah when you create, I'm just scrolling through my list now. When you create a Hyperloop project, you will get a folder that's created. Uh, let me just see where that is. It's Hyperloop iOS JS, and then yeah, there's a metabase dash eighto. It might say iPhone simulator or something. It's a JSON file that has all this. Exactly. So it creates all of this 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 list of of meta values that it's creating based on the stuff that you've implemented in the project and that was exposing the enums so i could there was a yeah there was a mismatch between the naming basically and as soon as i found that file and looked through i found the correct naming and then that helped me specify the right thing um, in my code so yeah you have to you have to do a little bit of research and a little bit of you know detective work sometimes with this stuff but once you've cracked that and you've understood the process but it is difficult i mean i don't i don't do much native at all a very, you know, very little native, whether it was old Objective-C doing a wrapper around a module, very quick demo, or just playing around with watch stuff and a few bits of Swift. That's it, you know. This, So this is much harder coming from that background. If you've come from a Swift background, especially, I think more so with Swift, I would say, because Swift is not JavaScript-like, but it's it's more friendly, isn't it, than Objective-C? I, I would say that as well, as well as if you're going to look at documentation, and you have a choice between looking at the documentation for Objective-C and Swift, look at the Swift, because especially with ES6, it's going to be a lot closer to Swift with what you're trying to do than Objective-C. And because I don't, I don't, I can read code, but I don't fully understand it because I haven't, I'm not a native developer. Yes, looking at the Swift code helped me understand it a lot, a lot better. And then that Metabase file, i that is, I would say, the number one tip for using Hyperloop, especially with the iOS side, is because that file is generated based on what you're using. So it's you have to build once first, so it's going to look at what you're importing, uh, what CocoaPods you're using, all that kind of stuff, and it's going to generate that file based on what... So it put as much in there, um, require statements for what you're going to be using, because then it's going to fully populate out what that what's in that metabase file and that will help you significantly for that particular project i guess we need some improved documentation to show more examples you know looking at the a good place to look is the the hyperloop examples app because it has lots of different samples of writing stuff whether it's you know directly to the sdk or whether it's via a coca pod or whether it's swift code i mean that's still something I, i do want to play around with more i want to want to actually take some Swift modules and some Swift classes and just drop those into that source folder and see if I can, you know, do stuff that way. Because I think that'd be quite interesting because you can, you could write stuff that's independent, independently testable in Swift, whether it's in a playground or, you know, in a Xcode itself um, and do almost like programmatic things where you can sort of create, you know, a component programmatically in Swift and then drop that in and see if that works. That'd be quite cool. Uh, But yeah, that, that, that would be, that's how I approached it. And I'm coming from a non- non-native background uh and it helped me a lot i I still want to do some more stuff with hyperloop um just haven't had the need at the moment the other thing i'll say that comes up now and again is you know if if the stuff you need to do is in the cross-platform api just use that (laughs) if if everything you need to do is there there's no need for you to you know play around with anything else with hyperloop it's you know it's nice if you want to play around to learn stuff but i've seen you know very it's very few people to be fair but i've seen the odd person that's talked about Hyperloop and having a problem with Hyperloop. And it turns out they're trying to create an instance of something that already exists, like a video player or 
you know, and they're not adding anything new to it. You know, if they were adding stuff that the video player doesn't support, then I guess that's that's obviously justified because you you need something in addition um, to what's there in the cross-platform API, which is a good use of Hyperloop. But I've seen some people doing it with like views, just UE views. And I'm thinking, well, views already exist. You know, you've already got that in the cross-platform API. Don't create, just give, give yourself more work by trying to redo something in Hyperloop because the other thing is you'll have to do it twice. You've got to do it for the Android and iOS. Hyperloop is not cross-platform in that sense. So anything you do in Hyperloop, if you've got a, if you want that feature in both platforms, you've got to write it twice, which means you've got to write some sort of simple wrapper around both to say, you know, create a consistent interface, just like the cross-platform API. Um, so it's, it needs to be thought through, you know, when you approach Hyperloop and, and you think you need Hyperloop in a project while you're actually using it. Right. Because Titanium is generating native views. So if you're using iOS and you're doing the create view using Titanium, a lot of times, helpful to remember too when you're using Hyperloop and you need a UI view, you can cast your titanium view as a UI view because titanium is generating native code. So you don't have to go to Hyperloop in order to be able to create these native views. Using titanium is and has always created native views. You just haven't been exposed to them. You don't see them, but it's creating native controls. So take advantage of that because those are very stable, tested, native controls that you have access to. The next part we had, the next question we had was from Rick Ainley, who was asking about tips when working with other IDEs, um, so CLI tips. Uh, and sort of linked to that was the question that comes up now and again of debugging and how people debug when they're not using Studio. Um, so I personally have not been using Studio for several years. Um, I use it when I need to for any blog posts or tutorials that need to be done. But I started using, I mean, I, I, I mix between the two, but I'm mostly an Atom user. I think your Visual Studio Code, do you use mostly? Correct. Yes, Visual Studio Code. Yeah, so there's there's lots of different IDs out there. Um, Sublime, I came from sort of Sublime Text, Text 3 or 2 and 3 background. I tried out one, I think it was called Brackets for a while. Um, but then settled when Atom came out on Atom, and that's the one I use mainly. So my sort of setup typically is uh, Atom for coding for the IDE. I've got some plugins there like um, JS Lint and JS Hint and some Titanium plugins to do with um, code completion and, and syntax and TSS and things like that. Uh, I've got a split view component that a guy called Josh Jensen wrote, which is really, really cool, um, so that when you double-click on a controller, it opens up and splits the screen to show you the views the styles as well, which is really cool. Um, that, and there's other plugins that can do that from a key press. Um, so I've got, uh, and what I like about that is, you know, you can plug in all these different things into Atom that, that aren't even Titanium related, they're JavaScript related. So I don't, things that highlight your white spaces or things that help you reformat and prettify the code and things like that. So that's quite, that, that, that's sort of my general setup. And then in the CLI, I use a little tool called Tiny, uh, TN uh, on NPM, which was written by Fokker originally. And he's, he's moved on from titanium stuff. So he's handed over those repos. So I've got that repo under my GitHub account now. Um, and I, I use tiny all the time. I don't know if you've used it, uh, but basically tiny lets you create very simple build configurations. So one of the, one of the really cool things it does, it, and this is the problem with stuff like this is, is um, it's like my, it's like diary. It's like my birthdays and things and people's birthdays that I don't remember because I put them all in my diary and I let it remind me, you know, you forget these things, just like phone numbers. I couldn't tell you my mum's home phone number. Um, it's, 
I, I just don't know it. You know, it's in my it's in my diary, and she's down as my mum, and I can just phone her, and that's probably really bad. But anyway, um, so with all these things, you, for, you I, I forget how to do some of the normal CLI stuff, and have to look it up if I want to do like a build for the app store or something because I'm so used to using Tiny. So one of the cool things Tiny does, first of all, is it can it can analyze your setup and it creates shortcuts for all of your simulators. So instead of doing the whole uh, device IDs and all that stuff, uh, you can create all these simple um, shortcuts. So for example, if I do TN iOS um, iPhone X, that's going to do an iOS build for my iPhone X simulator and launch it. And obviously I can add live view on the end and things like that. Similarly, I can do uh, TN, or not even iOS, I can just do TN App Store and it will do an App Store build. Um, Now, obviously it's going to ask me for provisioning and all that stuff, but you can, again, you can script that stuff separately. Um, So I tend to use it all the time and I do all these different shortcuts and those shortcuts can be global. So you can do TN App Store, but equally you could have a JSON config for Tiny within your project where if I said TN App Store, it would actually include all the provisioning stuff. So that I literally just can say TN App Store and it does an App Store build straight into Xcode. Or I can do TN Play Store and it will do me a Play Store build for Android, including any of the key store passwords and things. So it, I find it invaluable as a tool. Um, and I use it all the time for all my projects. And I am just totally used to using it. Uh, and it works with the TICLI. It works with the App CCLI. So it will detect if it's an AppC uh, project and do a app run instead it's all automatic it's a great tool um, so i use that a lot um what else do i use i use i use scripting uh, so if i have to do builds for different situations i might create simple shell scripts um, that just let me do um, an android build to a device or an android build to for a play store or whatever um, so i tend to sort of try and script a lot of stuff and one fun thing to do on the scripting um, it adds no functional value but it's just a bit of fun is if you use the speech command the say command of uh, os x or mac os i should say um, which is always fun so you can sort of start a build off and have it talking to you to tell you it's preparing this and it's doing this and it's uploading this um, and i use uh, the tith tool that i wrote or the titch tool as well um, so they're just ways that i can do things like changing the theme or changing properties which is useful if you're doing things like multi multi-app builds from a single code base where you need a, a different ti app xml and things like that um, so those are the, generally the things I use. So, yeah, I, I use Tiny all the time and have a nice thing, too, that you can do with Tiny is you can chain things. So if you, I mean, I just happen to open up my Tiny config file here, that my global one. But um, if you want to define a, a certificate for ad hoc versus a developer certificate and give it a name for a particular project or uh, profile you're using with Apple, you can do all these things. Uh, and then, like you said, if you're going to do something local, a lot of times what I've done is I can um, define something for myself and uh, look for a developer. And another developer might have that same, it'll look for that one on that developer's machine as well. But because he, we move it, that particular one, maybe to um, a global profile, then it will, the local script that you've already included with this particular project will run, but then it looks for the developer certificate for that particular developer. So basically we can do builds, two separate developers, two separate machines from a project, and they both work using different certificates because of where we've placed these um, tiny config files. So it's really powerful once you start messing with it and start 
setting it all up, you can get addicted to automating everything. And I also use that. I'm a big NPM user, so I will use a lot of the, the scripting. I always have a package JSON file in the root of wherever my project is, and I'll use the NPM scripts to be able to do things. So I can just do NPM run, and then I use that in combination with Tiny a lot of times to be able to do a clean, a super clean, or actually go and delete the resources and build folders and uh, change the version numbers, update things, add some release notes. Um, I automate it also using that to push the hockey app or whatever I happen to use to uh, test the app. Uh, you can use it. You can integrate with a lot of other command line tools that you might have. It, it gets really powerful. And I also get very lazy then as well. The few times I've had where something doesn't work <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I have to remember the command longhand now. <laughs> and then I struggle. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't make you lazy, but it is cool. Um, the other thing I do is um, I created a, I've just pulled it up actually. I created a really simple shell script app just called Create App, which I dump in my, um, my my root of my user and then I've created an alias for it um, and what that does is a series of things because you know it was I mean again this is laziness it sounds really silly thinking like this but it was that whole thing of starting a new project and bringing in all your common modules that you might use and sometimes when I'm when I'm doing this sort of stuff, you might think, well, actually, you just have a package.js, a package JSON, like you said, and just do npm and install these modules. Well, sometimes what I'm doing is I'm working with modules that I've written, like Resty or or some of the crux ones that I've worked on. And I want to bring those in, but I don't want to install them from npm because when I'm working on the project, I might improve them somehow. I might tweak them, and I want it to be tweaked in the original project. So... What I what I do is I've got this script and basically I say create app space and I give the app a name. Um, and then in the script, what it does is it does a few things. So it, it generates a prefix, which is com.bouncingfish. And then the name. Um, this is when I'm developing it. Normally I'll change the ID later down the line when I'm doing it for the client. But at this stage, I might not actually have a client, you know, app account to work with. Um, so then what it will do is it will check if the folder exists. And if it doesn't exist, it will then create the folder in my normal project location in my normal workspace. Uh, and it creates it for iOS and Android. It will then jump into that folder. It will then do alloy new to create an alloy project. It will create a lib folder if it doesn't exist. And then what it will do is it creates sim links to all the key projects that I use. So it might be Resty, might be my UE library that I'm working on at the moment. It might be one of my crux utilities and navigators and things like that. So it creates sim links. So my lib folder is now full of all those sim links back to the original projects that are still on my machine. Which means if I tweak them, if I have to tweak Resty for something, I can do that. And then I can submit a new version of Resty. I don't have to sort of copy and paste code. The other thing it will do is it creates a, a new Git repo. Um, and it also generates some defaults in the Git ignore file. So it puts things like builds and NPM debugs and resources folder and all the normal things that you might normally do. So it generates that for you. Uh, it will then tell me that the project's been created. It will make sure if it's not, it's in that folder. Then it launches Atom. And then it launches, uh, using Tiny, it launches iOS uh, with a iOS simulator using LiveView. So the end result is I basically say, create app, my test app. It builds the app, uh, sets the app up, puts all the common stuff I use, sets up the Git repo and Git ignore, because that's always something I would forget. 
you know, I'd be coding away and I'd forget to have done my Git ignore so or my Git repo, so I won't have a you know my, my nice commits telling me what I've done, and I'll have to do that whole initial commit, which is you know pretty much most of the app done, um, and then it will launch the app. So literally, it just pops up in the simulator, and I can immediately start playing around with it, which is quite cool. And I'm still working on tweaking that and adding more bits to it, but that works for me. Yeah, I do something very similar uh, uh, because I use npm to install everything. Usually I'll do npm install and install whatever, um, whether it's Rusty or something else. So if I want to, if I did want to do it locally, um, I use npm link. So instead of typing npm install, I use npm link and link it to my repo that's also in my hard drive. And it does the same thing though, just um, sugarcoats it with the uh, npm syntax. But now I have where I can edit it, I'm the same way. Like there's a lot of times where I know I'm going to be making some tweaks to it. And yeah, that's the worst if I get out of sync and then I'm like, okay, which code has the latest uh, modifications and going back and forth. So um, I do have to be careful if I'm doing things and accidentally delete stuff out of a a directory that's symlinked and I'm like, oh, okay. But usually I have everything in GitHub anyway, so I can, worst case, I can go get the latest yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and you start to, you know, when you start using the CLI, you start to play around with scripts and things. I've got another one, which I actually, I can't remember where I, what I got it from. I got it, found it from somewhere online. Um, and it uses image magic. Uh, and it basically, it's, I called it Android convert. And what it does is it will take any of the images in a folder. So if you've dropped all the iOS retina images into a folder, um, which normally I do outside of the project, just in case anything goes wrong. So if the client's given me, or I've got retina and non-retina images, I'll make a copy of that folder, just stick it on my desktop or something. I'll jump into that folder and then I'll run this conversion script. And it just literally is a one, you know, you just type the name of the script, Android Convert, it's called. Uh, and what it will basically do is it will generate, because sometimes, you know, you haven't got the final Android um, resources from the client. You might just have iOS to start with. But, so what it does is it uses image magic and it takes all of the images, especially the retina ones, and it uses the retina images to generate the different densities. So it creates you know, MDPI, HDPI, XHDPI, right up to triple XHDPI, um, where triple XHDPI is twice the retina image size. So, you know, it's scaling them, which is not ideal. But what it means is you've immediately got something that will build and work and look correct size-wise in Android. So your icons will suddenly be the same size, correct size. But what it also means is I can take that folder and I can stick that, whether it's in a separate repo or just a zip, and I can give it back to the client and say, I now need the proper Android images. Here's the folder structure and file format. And, and they can then hopefully, you always hope this is the case, but most of the time it's not, they give you back another zip file or another folder with everything replaced with the correct files, and then you can just copy those over yours. But it just sort of gets me going. And these are little tricks that you end up doing, and, you know, like the tiny scripts or or other, you know, shell scripts that you end up creating to make life easier because, you know, you're doing this all the time. You're building apps all the time. You want to make this you want to make this easier. And it is a, a real lifesaver when you eventually do it. Um, it's like creating, um, you know, service shortcuts in OS X where you create sim links by right-clicking and things like that. That sort of stuff's handy as well. But like you say, you can do things like you can chain stuff together. So you could do like something that does a complete clean of the project because there are situations where TI clean isn't enough, especially when you're sharing code with someone else. I got into a situation with a client where I'd made a huge amount of changes to a project where I was working on the Android side for a tablet and the code had been written by them already and I was doing lots of Android tweaks. I gave the code back to them. So I checked the code back in uh, and when they checked it out and tried to build it, it wasn't working. 
Uh, they couldn't build it. They were getting build issues. Uh, or what was happening was um, it was launching, but it didn't seem to have any of the changes I'd done, and they didn't understand why. And it wasn't good enough to just delete the build folder, which is what TI Clean can. Well, TI Clean can do the resources folder sometimes, but in their situation, it wasn't deleting all of the resources folder. It was just doing the build folder. So um, they had to basically delete the contents of the resources folder, then do a rebuild, which either was done through the normal command line or using the alloy compile method. And that seemed to reset everything. And then everything was fine and they saw the updates. Uh, but it was, you know, you could, you could basically automate that as part of your own sort of super clean feature, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure if it was uh, what tool you're using for the image. I know, I think it's hosted under your GitHub now, but... T-icons or T-icons, um, CLI. Uh, I, I use that all the time for generating, not only for Android, but for iOS, uh, all the different types of launch images or um, icons that I need. Uh, and also you can just take regular images. Uh, it'll look for like the at 3X image and it can convert yeah, the different Android densities or whatever I happen to use. I think it uses image, mag- image magic under the... Hood. Yeah, it's very cool. I mean, and there's lots of things like this. There's lots of stuff out there that will help you in in sort of you know when you're doing command line stuff, uh, CLI stuff. I mean, I've always been, you know, I used the command line back in the old the old DOS days, and I always I, I always um, it was funny because I always found myself moaning about people that spend all their time in the command line or use Vim and stuff like that because it's like why would I want to type stuff when I could just click things? But actually, there's certain situations where you definitely, I mean, there's definitely situations where you don't want to be using the command line because it's a pain in the backside, but there's definitely situations like this where, you know, scripting things and writing little aliases and commands make things a bit easier. I wrote, um, I think I put it on uh, GitHub somewhere as a, a, a gist or a gist or however people pronounce it now. Um, that was a GitHub alias, a Git alias that did things like, because one of the things that would happen is, you know, release notes. So you would... I mean, you see developers do this all the time and I've done to be to be fair I've done it where you you post a new update to an app and you just end up going uh bug fixes and imp- performance improvements because you can't remember you either can't, you either can't remember what you did or you don't want to go through and have to dig everything out so one of the things I I try and do and I say try because I sometimes fail is I try and do those very small atomic commits for everything so I work on something and even if I've got loads of updates in showing in in git I will, you know, cherry pick ones to say, right, this was adding this and this was adding this and list those as separate commits and, and try and keep it fairly simple in terms of what I've done, you know, refactoring or added support for deletion of users or something. Uh, then what happens is I wrote a little alias, um, which was just very simple in Git that lets you, I, so I can actually type at the command line, Git today or Git recent or Git last seven days as one word. And then it will it will pull out the commit history, which is usually very verbose. It will shorten it down to a, to the single line without showing the commit reference, so just the description. It also puts the dash in front, so like a bullet point, and it displays it in the in the CLI. So you can literally say Git today. So if I've if I've done some changes today and I'm submitting a new build via installer or app preview or test flight, I could just type Git today. It gives me a little list immediately that I can just copy and paste. 
and I can just dump that straight into the release notes. And most of the time, those will make sense unless it's something like I don't want them to see because it just doesn't make sense or, you know, like things like cleaned up formatting. You know, that's to do with code. You don't want them to see that. So I'll just chop those bits out. But it, it saves me a lot of hassle in terms of working out what's changed and what's been done. And at one point I wrote, I need to check whether it still works because I know I had some node issues. I wrote a command line tool for installer. So I could use installer, I could I could basically say, you know, installer, publish app or upload app and it would take care of it. And one of the nice little features that I was quite proud of with that is that it used that git today uh, or, or it used the, the raw script, if you like, if, if you didn't have that alias installed to, to get the release notes. So you could configure your installer app ID within the TI app XML for your app. So you'd have to do that first upload, do the first upload, get the app ID, configure that into the TI app XML file so that installer now knows what the app ID is. And then basically I could say installer publish or installer send. And what it would do was it would um, build the app. It would upload the app to installer and it would check the date of the last build, work out the date difference between this one and the last one and do a Git history, grab the Git history, summarize it into a bullet point list and add that to the release notes. So if you were that's happy cool. with it, yeah, if you were happy with it being published as is, that's what it would basically do. And you know, you can get around some of these things where you want to say, you know, cleaned up formatting, reduced white space by just prefixing it with you know code refactoring, and then the client doesn't need to worry about it. But it was quite get rid uh, of I mean, all your angry comments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's the other thing. You could you could do some sort of prefix code or suffix code that says. For the stuff you don't want visible, you know, <laughs> so, so your, your your script can then remove that stuff, or look for keywords, or even run it through a sentiment JS file. Um, I've got a bot that I wrote um, that does likes and things on Twitter, so it runs in my account and it will like stuff mentioning Titanium Accelerator. So if if anyone ever sees me like something really quickly that they've put up, sometimes it's me doing it, but sometimes it's my bot doing it, and I, I use a little sentiment JS uh, engine which basically um, looks through the tweet that's been posted and works out whether it's negative or positive. And if it's positive, does a like it. If it's negative, it sends me a message so I can check it. <laughs> so that's quite cool. So you can run, you know, as a, as, a, as a JavaScript thing that someone wrote, so you can plug that sort of stuff in as well, work out whether the, the Git commit was positive or negative or neutral, and then include it or not. <laughs> Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's cool. All, all that sort of stuff you you end up playing around with. Sometimes, like me, you end up doing the same thing fifty times until you think, actually, I could just you know spend ten minutes and write this into a script and save myself a lot of hassle. Um, so that's that stuff that I'm still playing with, and like the create app um, script, I'm still trying to add some things to. But one of the things that comes up quite often when we talk about CLI or when people discuss the CLI in Slack or wherever is debugging. Now, one of the things that's come up recently that you can do, and there's a nice little tutorial on this, which we'll point to as well, is you can use the Safari debugger to debug JavaScript from your apps, which is quite cool, and step through code. Uh, but traditionally, I've not really bothered with any of that uh, previously. I, I guess I'm thinking it's my age and just the way I am, uh, but I sort of came from the old school ASP, you know, Java, um, what was it Visual Basic? Uh, effectively active server pages which you usually coded outside of sometimes you could do stuff in visual studio but most of the time you were coding it in text editors so it was a very primitive way of coding you were writing you were writing i keep saying javascript it wasn't you're writing this visual basic code 
in these uh, web pages, and then you were basically testing it locally or testing it remotely, and that was it. I mean, there was no real step through debugging capability, and so I sort of come from that historical background of of using what I describe as response.write here, <laughs> which nowadays would be console.log here type of debugging, which is essentially sticking in, you know logs in your code to work out where you are and what's going on so you can see where something's breaking. It's not the best way to do it in the world. It's not going to help with really detailed uh, modules or libraries where you're you know delving deep into stuff. Uh, but it has worked for me. Um, I'm it sort can of, get you a long ways, like adding like breadcrumbs along the way, and especially if you remove them compile time when you're going to build, you can remove a lot of those. Yeah, I mean, basically this, I mean, I do quite like bug fixing. I do like quite finding, like finding bugs because you are doing some detective work. You know, it's things like, um, you know, my app's, my app's crashing on launch or there's, a, there's some sort of issue when I'm building my app and it's launching. Well, that could be a multitude of different things, but I like the whole elimination thing. So, you know, is this a problem with my environment? So I go into another project, I build that project with the same SDKs, I launch it, does it launch? If that fails and I'm seeing this consistently, then it sounds like I've got some sort of environment issue of some kind. If that's working and the other app is working, uh, isn't working, then it could be something that's you know app specific. So then it's a case of looking into that app itself. So where is it failing? Is it failing? You know, can I drop something into the Alloy JS file to fire up an alert or something as the as the app launches? Is it getting that far? And so you can start looking at things like that. So there was a good example recently where I did an app and I, I still don't know what caused it or what the problem was, uh, but it was something to do with um, backbone. It was something to do with models and collections and how. Uh, a mo- updating a model and trying to save its change was causing a problem that, that basically caused the app to bomb out. It was a really simple photo app. And it worked fine with the previous, uh, I think it was uh, an iOS 11 change because iOS 10 I built it for and it was tested and it worked fine. But something happened and it caused this problem. And essentially, yeah, I just had to go through the process. So I knew that when you, when you, cl- you click the edit button and you tapped a photo in the list, you had a rename option. Uh, it was a little 360 photo viewer and you could basically, it was very simple. You could scan QR codes and it would load the photos in and you could do panoramic, you know, look around them and stuff. So I knew it was happening when I hit the save button on the rename. So there was only a few bits, you know, there's only a few places that could happen. And it was essentially a case of just going through and working out with logging and everything. You know, I knew the alert was coming up uh, with the alert dialogue, with the, the name asking for the change. I was typing it in successfully. I was hitting save and at that point it was bombing out. So what I didn't know was, was it bombing out immediately after the alert finished? Was it when the model was changed? What, what was it when it was synced back to the back end? And so it was a case of just putting some logging in and working out where it was actually failing. Um, once I got it down to the point where I could find the line of code where I knew it was, then I could do things like, well, let's strip out that line. Of, let's just comment out that line of code and see what happens. And now what was it wasn't bombing out. Uh, it was just going back to the list, but obviously the name wasn't changing because the line of code was changing the name, and that was what the problem was. And it, and the funniest thing was it wasn't it wasn't the actual name change on the model that was actually happening. It was the rebinding to the list was causing a problem. So I just had to come up with a different way of doing that, and it was a little workaround. It wasn't that big a deal, uh, but it got it it got it fixed so I could submit an update because it was actually at that point it was live in the store. Um, so I, we just did a quick update or was, I think it was on test flight, but we did a quick update and it was updated. So yeah, I mean, it's just old school debugging really. I, I don't think I've used a step through debugger and since I used to do, um, ASP.net stuff where you could actually step through a local web app, um, 
but even then you know i remember the days with because that was sort of visual basic and c sharp but there were the days when i used to code with visual basic where you could i don't know if you ever did this where you could you could change the uh, values of things and change code as you went along um, because it was a proper runtime it wasn't compiling anything so right. you you could actually step through a function and where the line of code was going wrong you could literally in visual basic just change the code as the breakpoint was sitting on it and then you could hit continue and it would execute that new line of code and so it would work and your code was saved when they moved into the net stuff net worked with more of a compilation method so what you were actually seeing was the you were seeing the step through code but you couldn't really change it at the time because it was already compiled uh, but what you could do is you could you could look at values. So you could look at a value that had been created, like a variable, and you could change the variable and things like that. So that was quite cool. But I've never, for me, I, I mean, I you know, I like Studio, but I like the flexibility of Atom. I like the flexibility of creating, you know, adding whatever modules you like and the split view stuff and the scripting that I can do. One thing I will say is it does get tricky when you're working in one met with one method and someone else on your team is working with another um i haven't necessarily cracked this yet because i haven't looked into it and maybe there's an easy solution but this one that comes to mind is things like formatting you know th there's ways of configuring the formatting of studio and then there's ways of having something like prettify or whatever for atom or visual studio code and one thing that i found is that when you've got someone who uses a different ide with a different formatting tool things can go weirdly wrong when you decide. Because I've sort of almost like muscle memory. You know, I'll write some code and I'll do my key press to format it. So, you know, sometimes I'll put stuff in the right place. Otherwise, I'll just cocoa code, you know, key press, bang, save, done. If someone yeah, else... I started standardizing on ESLint, the, the particular one. But then, yeah, I had to document how to use that with all the different IDEs to make sure that developers were formatting and would read whatever the the file that was checked in for that particular project no matter what id you were in it was like it had to be formatted according to that file because yeah if you start getting white space diff it can really mess stuff up when you have multiple developers exactly and also you know you don't want that situation where i've had to undo before to get around this where you know you've you've got a huge file you're doing some tweaks to it you've changed three lines you do the whole format thing you hit the save button, you go to Git, and it suddenly shows like loads of red because basically everything has changed in the file in terms of position of everything. And now your commit difference is quite difficult to see. So I sort of then have to undo the format, save again, go back to Git. Now I can see that there's two things that I've changed and you know that's what's happened and then commit that. And at that point, you sort of have to either adapt what you're doing to not mess around with the code or like you say, come up with some sort of standard way that all these people in the different IDEs can work because there are subtle differences. You know, some some will add a space after the function keyword, some won't, and those things can show up as big differences when you're you're doing a commit. So that's that's one thing I would definitely you know look at doing if you were working on a team, and um, because people use different things. You know, you'll get someone who does want to use um, Atom and someone who does want to use Visual Studio Code. You'll get someone who probably wants to use Vim and stuff like that. You know, and it's just coming up with a way to make sure that's going to work across across all of you. Right. Absolutely. So um, I do a lot of the breadcrumbs, like you were saying, a lot, if I can at least narrow down where the flow of when things happened, that helps me a lot. But I've occasionally used the Safari debugging that you can do with Titanium as well. When I do want to hit a breakpoint and kind of evaluate some things 
without having to go and modify some of the code. Uh, I do know that you can, I think, I don't know if, if it's lately a new feature or if it's always been there, but I know you can use Chrome debugging for, I believe, for Android apps. Uh, I haven't tried that yet, but I've heard some people using it and Bella do that as well. So if if you really want the debugger, then there's different options for iOS and Android with Titanium to be able to get a debugger running quickly. Yeah, I think there's a link to that. Um, there's some documentation on that as well, so I can, I'll can i stick that in the show notes as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the it, with all this stuff, it, I, mean, I remember inheriting an app years ago um, that had a real performance issue. It was a, It was laying out these... It was like a local events restaurant type thing. And it was laying out this list, which was a pretty simple list. It was sort of boxes. Um, and the idea was, uh, these. Bo- it was almost like a grid type view, almost like a collection view, but it wasn't being done with a collection view at the time. I don't think there was support for it. And I was trying to establish there was a massive performance issue in the rendering of this thing. And the the client seemed to think it was the data coming from the server. So he he suggested that, you know, for some reason, the server's responding really slowly with this JSON data to render the list out. And it was a very, very, very convoluted code in terms of including modules and including other modules that included other modules that passed these functions down. It was just very, very complicated for what it was doing. And I had to do a lot of debugging in terms of console writing and trying to work out what the hell was going on. And I managed to establish that it wasn't the server because I could do a simple you know, console log before and after getting the data. Um, that was coming back almost instantaneously. So it was definitely a UE issue. And it just turned out to be basically that they were doing a lot, way too much um, UE rendering. You know, so for example, instead of relying on certain things you know are always there, like top, left, bottom, right, they were trying to position stuff in a different way that was more absolute or more relative, I should say. And they were almost including multiple views inside the main view to create a bordering type effect. So if you imagine having a box view and then to create the indenting of a view inside, they were actually creating four other views, you know, one at the left, one at the top, one at the right, one at the bottom, and then positioning, and it was horrendous. And we managed to speed it up by removing all of that, you know, additional stuff that wasn't required, positioning things based on a, you know, left, bottom, top, right type point. And the other thing that was key was we inst- there was a lot of calculations going on about how to position each box next to each other when all that was really required was changing the view to be horizontal layout and allowing it to just wrap. So all you did was, was just add another box. And as you added the boxes, they just wrapped. And so you ended up with this grid-based view really easily. And we managed to improve the performance of it. Um, but but that was a really that was a really horrendous one because it was so convoluted you were you were going down these rabbit holes trying to work out how things were being passed to each other it wasn't um i don't think it was an alloy project it wasn't an alloy project which made it even worse and i I guess that's the key thing for debugging is the less code that you can write the better chance you're going to have of you know working through bugs and, and debugging stuff and the best advice i can give based on experience is to is to modulize and use modules as much as you can that are pre-built um, so if you've got a, an API module, like, you know, the resty one that I built, have that as a common JS module that you can include and test that separately, you know, test it, make sure it works, make sure you get the results back, make sure your error handling's all in there, have that as a complete self-contained testable module. And then when you add that to a project, you're going to have less difficulty, unless something in your specific project is causing a bug in it, 
um, you know, you can test that separately. You can test it with those calls to that API. You don't have to have your app influencing it. And it just means that you can you can test all these stuff individually, make sure it all works, make sure it works cross-platform if it's a cross-platform component. So when you actually come to put all this stuff together in your app, the only stuff you have to debug in your app is the stuff that implements those things. And that, for me, makes life a lot easier. You know, keeping controller code down to sort of, you know, 50 lines maximum. And if, it, if your business logic requires more than that, stick your business logic in another module because you can always test that separately anyway using unit testing. Um, that's, that sort of helped me because the one thing I hate doing is f- firing up a view of a controller and seeing like, you know, 200 lines of code that you've now got to try and work out what the hell's going on. Yeah, I, th- I think trying not to reinvent the wheel, the whole, if I didn't build it, it's not worth it kind of thing, but... Able to reuse if you're able to reuse people's code that's already especially if it's already been tested code, then that's a lot less testing you have to do in your app as well because you're using a, a trusted component and yeah, I'm a huge proponent of that as well. Yeah, and, and there's always gonna be situations where something still causes something to break in a external module. But you know, if it's something like an API module that's using post and get and put and delete you can test those URLs separately. You know, A, you can test them in something like Paw or a REST client. You know, does that does that call actually work? That's, I mean, when it comes to API testing, that's the one thing I always do. When someone gives me their API, I'll test that straight away in a REST client. I don't even want to introduce Titanium code yet because I just don't want to make, I want to make sure that actually works. So when I do a post and I'm sending the headers through and I'm sending the values through and I'm getting the response back, that all works. Then I know there's nothing wrong with their API. Because the worst thing you can do is start playing with something like RESTy or something like that, putting all your config together. You've got these bugs. You've got this crashing. You've got errors that are coming up. You don't know why it's happening. And it actually turns out the API isn't responding with the correct thing. Or, you know, classic example with the API stuff is if you don't sometimes put in um, the content type as application JSON, you can get all kinds of crazy stuff going on where you're, you're submitting valid values but you're getting nothing. You're getting stuff back that doesn't make sense, or you're getting an error. And actually, just by adding that, suddenly you're getting the, res- the correct responses because it it wasn't. I, I had it the other day with a an API that said it wasn't. I wasn't passing through the correct value, but I was. But because I'd forgotten to put the application slash JSON entry in, it wasn't working. As soon as I put that in, I got the correct value, and then I know the API works. It makes it a lot easier, you know, going down the line. Yeah. And if you already have something working, say Postman or some other tool, and it doesn't work in your app, then you can always go back and do a comparison of the headers, your parameters, whatever it is, to see what's different. That seems like a good place to finish up. Covered a lot today again. Thanks a lot, Brenton. All right.